With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. without white folks, and be able to raise the question, what is it that we're going to do independent of white people? It is very, very hard for us to envision a world without white people. But we cannot create our own agenda until and unless we can define an agenda that can envision a world in which they don't exist. Now we have to wake up and come back to the reality of them. But certainly when we talk about a future, we have to talk about a future from our point of view and our historical understanding of reality. Hitipu, Indamana, Indamanesh, Nangadef, Habargani, Majwa, Salbona, Anisogoma, Peace. War. Pan-African greetings, family. My name is Kamal McCasey Tahuti, and you've entered Africa's reascension. We'll start like we usually start with an apai or a libation, which deliberately calls upon the energies of our African gods, our African spirit forces, and the forces of those yet born to bless and guide this endeavor. I go, I go, I go. Otomakuman, Inyame, Inyame wa, the treaty upon. All over him. Amen, Amen Ra, Pata. Bejeansa. Asasayansa. Abasunansa. Abasunpoansa. Nanasurjibiansa. Nana Esiketua and Sa, Nana Dada Kofi and Sa, Nana Kumi and Sa, Nana Tigare, Nana Tigare, Nana Tigare and Sa, Kweku Free and Sa, Akonadi Abena and Sa, Asubonten and Sa, Ocherewa and Sa, Tamensa and Sa, Nana Nomen Samanfo and Sa, and Samanfo Abasuofao and Sa, Abasum. Yeshremo Yansa Yeshremo Ahuda Yeshremo Enchera Yeshremo Sikapa Yeshremo Enquasso Yeshremo Enquasso Abasuo Fao Ye Enquasso Astachu, Odumakama, Inyamewa, Treaty Upon, Olorun, Amen, Amen Ra, Pata. 
to use me and this forum to impart clarity and cultural consistency to all within the sound of my voice. May I speak directly to your soon soon, your spirit, and reawaken the long, dormant, and asleep African inside. Medasi pa, medasi bio, mo piafo, mo ne casa, medasi nana no, yo medasi nana no. What you just witnessed, what you just heard, again, is the Apae, Apae, A-P-A-E. It's a true term for libation. And it's an ancient practice that is still done to this day in all rural traditional areas throughout the continent. Past, present, and future become one as those of tomorrow look upon what we are doing now and drawing strength from and doing the rituals of Yesterday Again this is Kamal McCasey Duhuti And you have entered Africa's Reascension Ah man We are gonna Get on get back on topic For a minute In a minute But uh, as, 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 As Folks know Who listen on the computer I follow immediately after Mr. Holipsism show, and um, today he had a very good topic as far as the mind fuck of leadership, and <laughs> the 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 chat, some of the chat room comments, sort of, hmm. Sort of got me at odds. Sort of got me just thinking again, and you know, I think we all get like this at some point. But what, what, what's the point of all of this? What are we fighting for? Uh, for folks who listened to the show last week, uh, for the first hour we were on topic talking about the New Orleans uprising of 1811, and then Brother Yao Kepper called in right around the um, second hour, and. Uh, even though it wasn't on topic, I let the talk go on because it was something that was very needed. And he was asking basically the same question. What are we liberating for? What are we going towards liberation for? What are we going towards nation building for? And over and over again, it seems like we just want to get white folks off our back. And that's it. We think that if we become liberated, we think that if we build up just our own nation, then the whole rest of the world will fall in line and everything will be fine and and that no other work on, on, on looking and watching other nations uh, will need to take place, but in, in, in with, with holipsism show, some of the stuff that was in the in the chat room just got me thinking that there are some people who are well intentioned and and they have I think good hearts, 
but they don't really want to listen. They don't want to put their ego aside and listen to possibly some other ways of attacking the situation. They don't want to look at doing something new, doing something potentially different. Almost almost every idea that I heard on the show has been something, if we really looked and studied our history, has been tried and failed before. Brother Holism started off his show beautifully when he made the point that it when, when a leader, when a quote-unquote leader is alive, folks, you know, we sort of deal with them with a long-handled spoon. Then when they die, we want to recite and quote every single syllable that they said or that they wrote down. And and he made the point of we never take what they said and what they did to the next fucking level. We only want to do exactly just what they did, not not taking the time that they were around and, and the circumstances that created them and created all that stuff. We don't take that into account. We want to take the exact words of Marcus Garvey from 1920 try to make them applicable for 2011 Gregorian calendar and expect the exact same results. We still want to freaking march and protest like 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 brother King like brother King was doing today even though crackers have become way more sophisticated in in, in those short 40 51 years. We want to do the exact same stuff. And then Holup made the point of, so, and then if they come back, if if these leaders that we talk about, if they didn't come back and look at what we're doing now, they're going to be pissed off because the folks just want to do what they did and not take what they did to the next level. And then that connects with my earlier point. Taking stuff to the next level means going out on a limb and actually trying something new. Taking stuff to the next level means fusing what worked with King, what worked with Baba Mawali, what worked with Garvey, fusing all those three things together, and then throwing away what didn't work for those three. That may be what moves us to the next level. But it is so far, few and far between of people who want to do that. These leaders are sacrosanct. You can't critique them in any way. You can't say one negative thing about them in a respectful way. They will throw you out of the, the wherever you're speaking, and, and we look at our situations today and still wonder why. We get into these blog talk programs and think we say some shit deep, by saying the exact same thing of what somebody else said 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago when it worked for them then, not taking into account new situations, new environments, new sophisticated tactics. Garvey ain't had to deal with the Internet and all the BS that's on TV. They didn't have TVs in the freaking 20s, so they ain't had to deal with that. Bob Obawale ain't had to deal with the Internet and all this confusion. King, there are different dynamics in place today, people. So we have to study these people, figure out what worked, 
figure out what didn't work. Take those things that did work, fuse them together, add in new ideas, because you got this whole new African-centered movement that's here today that, that that as far as philosophically and it's a lot more broken down and understood and stuff now that wasn't there when Garvey was around, that wasn't there when King was around, and was just in that beginning embryonic stage when Omawali was around because for folks that know the research, it was Dr. Clark who helped um, who, who, who helped give um, – Baba Omawali, his his OAU OAAU speech, and, and and did the research for him. So and 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 for folks who listen, Doctor Clark, he will tell you his personal relationship with with with, with Baba Omawali. So it, it, this Afrocentric African Center movement was just in its germinating phase, embryonic phase, when when Baba Omawali was around. But we got all that information now. Folks don't want to do nothing different. And, and 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 we don't think those of us who call ourselves conscious, we don't think that we are also affected by white supremacy. By calling ourselves conscious, we are now totally cured and completely cured, and therefore we don't have to look at ourselves and our own ideas and actually see if any of this shit is working. So we can keep saying stuff over and over and over again, thinking we all deep and saying some deep stuff but then want to critique somebody who's on the same side as you, but that person is challenging the actual feasibility of what you're trying based on history, not based off of ego needs, just we tried that shit in 54, we tried that in 60, we tried that in 67, and it only got us so far. So let's add this information in. Let's do this a bit differently. And then they, 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 you, you get little blog talk shows talking against you and stuff like that. But okay, I'm calm. So yeah. Resistance to Enslavement, Phase 3. That was my little rant, I guess. Uh, magnificent show, hold up. <laughs> it really was, just, just towards that last hour there. It, it, <sighs> so, yeah, so so resist, Resistance to Enslavement, um, Phase 3 on Foreign Soil, Part 2. Like I already said, um, we were... Talk where the, the focus of today's talk is um, American Uprising by um, Krokozoi Daniel Rasmussen. He put together this book that finally gives nationwide attention um, to the largest American um, enslaved African revolt um, on this soil, um, January 8, 1811. Uh, seven years off the heels of the successful um, enslaved African um, revolt over in Haiti. Uh, And that one was almost 200 years removed from the successful enslaved African revolt in Palmares. That was around 1605, I think that's when that one started. so, yes, yeah, so tonight we'll finish up 
with uh, the New Orleans uprising of 1811 and um, continue from there. So <laughs> play a promo, play some music, and finish up. Welcome to the desert of the real. Peace, family. This is your brother, Hollop, a.k.a. Mr. Holipsis, a.k.a. the Buzz Killer. Tune in to Holipsism's Haven every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we discuss the social, economic, and political issues of the day with a common-sense approach, an African-centered perspective, and a universal sensibility. Call in number 347-843-4874. That's 347-843-4874. To check out related YouTube videos, blogs, and show archives, visit www.holipsism.com. That's www.holipsism.com. I'm making it hard to get your Negro on. Hotep, Black Power. There's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. Your right great-great-grandfather killed my great-great-grandfather, and your white great grandfather sold my great-grandfather, and your white grandfather raped my grandmother, and your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? We should always begin with the African worldview, with the African asili, as it were, the asili, the cultural seed, the essence of the culture, because that is our grounding, that is our frame of reference, and without an understanding of the African worldview, we really cannot um, critique European thought and European behavior effectively. We need that foundation that comes from outside of the European worldview. We cannot critique European thought and behavior functioning within their framework. We have to come outside of it. And for us, what comes from our nature um, is our understanding of the world, the way in which we relate to the world, and the seed from which our culture developed and exists in a state of vanglorious as we are protected by the red, the black, and the green. Heed the words of the brothers. Let us the words, word the phrase, the paragraph. Heed mass as Jay begins class. Science of past is now brought to the rhyme stage from the scroll state to the verse. God's a God from God's a man. Many kings, many leaders, a fist from a hand. They call me militant. Now what does this mean? Do I carry a gun to make an army team? Put the cause and never pause. As simply as a brother. Raise the flag, wave the colors. Red, black, green with the key. The difference. Words make a way in the world in the instant. Living to die and I die to live again. 360 degrees. Comprehend. A man getting stronger till he's man no longer. Unearthly state makes the time move shorter. The ever radiant awareness brought forth the one. Open eyes, stroke sun. Patterns and priests standing by what I teach. So you all stand starving as I start to leave. Well, we're gone. Oh, 
Barcelona face aggression. Quite majestic, stern within reality. A juggernaut when you tamper with mentality. However, crown, extension, and dimension of a brain cell. Bringing hell to the cell out. The ever tangled web we weave. Always trying to obtain, no attempt to achieve. Descendants of kings and queens act like justice. Never potential, quarter of the matter. Jealousy of what are we? Become tendency for their thievery. All right, cool. But no need to pull the trigger, that's a fool. I get my words like that in my tool To produce the words that they fool about. It's another way of checking out these sissies. When they try to extinct my principality. But of course I'm not telling you madness. From beginning, I'm the end. Observe me. Ignorance is not a trend. So as I beckon for a few seconds, pull the reins. Is a four-side church, Egyptian, African. Now I'm on a black watch. Check my sundial, synchronize the clock. I can catch a shadow as the moon reflects the sun. Creator's eyes make a passable of one. So now I walk softly and carry a big stick, a bird stick, so you native from the lake. Then brings the funk and spreads jam to the wheat bread. And the folk of this one vanglorious, unearthly resistance, strong with persistence. Grand verbal application, tribal connection, pyramids, witness the punk bearer, vibe sharer, not the error. Brother is balanced like the scales of thought. And even my demand may stole new thoughts. Corrupt all systems, positive poison of me. Some call it onk, it's a key. Black is the color while blackness, state of a mind state. But how many of you say? Today, Brother Jay can find a better way, so be it. Plan it down and make it say I serve a purpose. Yet I'm not the G.I. Joe, I am the brother. Yo, I could never wear a purpose. That breaks the clock barrier. Words of old make me more than a beginner. The key opens knowledge and places in the center. American a man, African a brother. Don't forget the land, cause the birth is from the mother. A vibe is in place, obtained and discovered. Tune in your audio and hear the words of the brother. Yo, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Sephora. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, step off. Again, that that that. Now y'all know that was um, X Clan. <laughs> Heat the words of the brothers, and then that fed right beautifully into what was played before that with Mama Remba and me. We got to go outside of this system to properly critique it, and that is the one lesson that we have not got. Period. Period. It is. Oh, there's too much to go with that one. We are in a reality box, and and I'm going to get on topic. We are in a reality box right now, and and this reality box, unfortunately, isn't our reality. It's the European reality box, and about one percent of us are willing to acknowledge that and then fight to get out of that box or at least move to the edge of the box where you try to poke a hole in the box. Most of us do not acknowledge we are in a reality box. So then everything that we do is based upon some type of European idea. Everything that we do is based on some type of European idea. Now, 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 this is a aside from what I'm talking about, but it's related to the topic. So yesterday, 
the author was at the bookstore, Daniel Rasmussen of American Uprising, the book we've been talking about last week, and we'll get to this week. And so he was talking about the book, and, and I'll share some of that in a minute. And a questioner got up. It was a brother, well, at least a person with black skin. He asked him, now, now remember, I just said we're in a reality box, and only 1% acknowledge that we are in someone else's reality. So his question was, do you think that the people who put together the revolt were influenced by Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan? Personally, I've never read and I don't care to read Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. I guess it's got something to do with resistance or challenging power or something like that. I don't know. If there's folks in the chat who has read it or know about it, y'all can put it in there and school me. But I'm sitting there in my chair, fueling, because I'm like, why in the hell would an African-type resistance move by, by stolen Africans in America fighting for their liberation? Why would them fighting for their liberation have to be rooted in them reading some shit from Thomas Hobbes? Why can't it be Africans naturally want to be free and don't want to be enslaved? And so they're fighting for their freedom. Just on that alone, why would would that question even the fuck come up in somebody's head that, that the only way you would even want to rebel against this great system is if you were moved and motivated by the words of Thomas Hobbes and his Leviathan and some white boy... I, I I wanted to jump out of my chair and jump that day. Oh my mm. We are in another person another group's reality. In total. And if we are not consciously and deliberately fighting against that, that is our default reality. And 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 too many of us, especially those that put the cute little label conscious after after themselves, don't want to acknowledge that one simple fact. And, and, and then they say they've read, heard and read Amos Wilson, but he's got what he calls his five slave constants. <laughs> and, 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 and folks in the chat room who, who know about his slave constants, y'all can say, I'm in raw to that. And he walks through, Amos tells us, we haven't changed one whit from from the slave consciousness that our great, 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 great ancestors have. Because when you boil it all down, we were brought over here to make crackers money. At that time, it was for free, free labor, and now they give us a little bit of crumbs off the table. But But if you just want to keep it on that one point, that fundamental relationship has not changed one bit. And then since he was a psychologist and a psychiatrist, we can get a whole lot deeper into how that hasn't changed one bit from back then to right now. But that that question just pissed me off to know it. Were were these revolters moved by Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan? Did you see anything that maybe they had read that or come across? No, fool. They understood they were in a different reality. They understood that that reality was not what they wanted, 
and they rose up and fought against it. Everything does not have to be within the European reality for us to want to change against it. We don't always have to be motivated by something that we got out of the European reality to want to change against it. Just knowing that we're Africans, knowing that that's a different reality from this crap we're going through now, and then wanting to execute and create that new reality, that's what motivates folks who know. Not no damn Thomas Hobbes Leviathan. Anyway, okay. So I'm going to get back on point. So like I said, so so the author um, was 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 where I was here in D.C., and so I gave the intro for him. And so I want to share with y'all what I wrote and what I shared. There was about maybe 200 folks in the audience, and about 80% of them was white. But for folks that, that know me, y'all know I, I, I don't care. <laughs> to some degree, I, 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 Kamal means quiet warrior, and so you got to play that game that way. But I still try to slip in some stuff for the other 20% of the audience that was there. So so imagine this. This is what I said to an 80% white, 20% African audience dealing with a book on the largest slave revolt in America. Quilombo, Palmares Independence in Brazil, 1605. Haitian Revolution, 1804. New Orleans Uprising, 1811. These three examples of stolen African independence movements have some things in common. They all employed armed struggle and resistance to European incursions. They also show that there is there that there was a continuous strain of resistance to European colonization that flies in the face of the more popular yet incorrect enslavement narrative accounts that we went along peacefully and docilely into enslavement. What is different about these three stolen African independence movements is that while Quilombo has a feature-length movie talking about it, and the Haitian Revolution is known about by millions, up until this work, American Uprising, the longest text dealing with the New Orleans Uprising was a mere 44 pages. On January 8, 1811, upwards to 500 stolen Africans in New Orleans armed with guns, cane knives, axes, and a driving determination for freedom exercised then what stolen Africans need to look at today, 2011. They chose not to assimilate into a foreign way of life, nor did they want to integrate into and become president of a foreign way of life. They resisted and fought against that foreign way of life with the end goal of reestablishing life on their terms, their way. Uh, Even though I jumped right into the cover-up chapter to see how this magnificent story had escaped my and other historians' gazes, you have to read American Uprising from the beginning. The way Mr. Rasmussen tells the story is to be applauded. He starts by briefly laying out the horrors of enslavement, capture, boat ride, auction block. Then he details what was going on in America proper and in Louisiana specifically. 
He masterfully weaves the backstory of the four masterminds behind the uprising. Kwaku, called Kook, Kwabana, um, the records call him Kwabana, Harry Kenner, and Charles Delonde. Some beginning concerns were quickly jettisoned when I saw Mr. Rasmussen did rightly link what happened only seven short years prior in Haiti with this New Orleans uprising, and the revolt chapter was done admirably. Although this uprising did not prove successful in the end, with Mr. Rasmussen's dutiful scholarship, we now have another link in the long chain of resistance to European colonization to acknowledge. We have more names of resistance to call upon, and we have one more resistance story to pass on to present-day stolen African children. So, yeah, so that that was the intro that I gave uh, the author of uh, American Uprising. Um, and And as you notice, I'm not a big fan of the term African American. I think that's some BS because <laughs> we've never been because it's stolen land, and and we were brought over here as property, and so now that that sort of has changed, I'm going to identify with it. No, we are stolen Africans. 2011 Gregorian calendar, 6251 uh, the Kemetic calendar. We are still stolen African um, away from home. And so in a black audience and a white audience, that's the phrase that I use. Uh, and, and 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 it's true. We do we should get a hold of this book. We should remember the names of um Kwaku, Kwamina, Harry Kenner, and Charles Delone. Um, and we should be telling um the future generations about this story. Again, even though it wasn't successful in the end, just the fact that we took up arms and fought for our freedom. We didn't try to agitate legislature. We didn't protest and march and vote and have fucking write-in campaigns. No. These brave men sought to take to 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 take over the city of New Orleans. And just like with Haiti, make New Orleans another black republic. So last week, <clears throat> so last week we basically went through and we were right up to the, the revolt chapter or the revolt in, in play. Um, we walked through. The, the, the backstory of Charles Delon, and I butchered his name last week because I don't I don't speak French, so it's D E S L O N D S, and so, but that last name is French, and so I guess they don't pronounce the S's, you know, like in D C they don't pronounce the R's, you know, or they don't pronounce the A's. Everything instead of Mary, it's Murray. Instead of Curry, it's Curry. Anyway. So if you're in French, I guess they, they don't pronounce the S's, and so I said Deslondes or something last week, but it's Charles Delon. And so we went through his his backstory in the sense that he was the trusted 
head man and and he was uh, the overseer and he would come down and the other enslaved Africans and he was given a bit he was the one to take the message up the coast to other enslaved African owners and he'd go see his wife and that stuff. So he had some mobility and stuff unlike a lot of um, enslaved Africans. So when uh, Manuel Andre saw him leading the the, the, the the first wave of the revolt in his house, on his plantation, um, it shocked the hell out of him. And even though he got away with his life, uh, <clears throat> the enslaved Africans took out his son. And um, as as Mr. Rasmussen uh, brings up in the book and in his talk, that was probably the the, the first mistake of the of the revolt, letting Manuel live. And we'll get to that in a minute. So yeah, we went through. We we went through, um, you know, a few of the scenes that were created um, as far as us burning down plantations, as far as us killing white folks, as far as what the motivation of the revolt for, what the end goal of it was to be. Uh, We spoke upon how the drum, the African drums, came with them, and every time they were about to engage, they were... uh, Employed, um, and not just for musical entertainment. Not just um, I'm gonna get you sucky. You know, every hero needs his theme music. No, it wasn't like that. Um, the African drum, then as it is now, helps move us, helps motivate us. Uh, if you know the right rhythms, you can call down different energies to help them doing what you're doing. Uh, and and again, we know that a lot of the people within the, this revolt um, were were time uh, were Yoruba uh, were were Mende. Uh, more and more that information is coming out, <clears throat> and I just stumbled across a website um, that was actually and I, I asked the author about this. Asked him, did he know? It's, I put it in the chat room too. It's eighteen eleven slaverevolt dot com. And basically, um, some folks in Florida got together, and they didn't work, you know, together and in tandem with him. I guess they they may have saw his book or came across it themselves and then um, went and and, and started this project. But basically, it it goes through the timeline of what happened. And they went through a lot of the court cases and got uh, a lot of names of people who were involved. And uh, it gives you a bit of background. It walks through, um, like I said, the the court cases, the the BS court cases, calendar events, timeline, background information, and documents. But like I say, they did some detailed work on getting at least as many of the names as, you know, they could come across 
of the folks that were actually involved in in the revolt. And uh, like I said earlier, we can add some of these folks' names to uh, what actually happened. Uh, there's pictures. They they have a few pictures here. Uh, one of the pictures looks like one of the plantations that that we burned down uh, along the revolt. Um, they have another picture of a line drawing of the smoke filling the skies from different plantations um, being burned down. So yes, yeah, so like I said, let me put this in the chat room. Um, 1811slaverevolt.com, and, and it's, it's, you know, a small but nice amount of information, again, talking about um, this bef- before before Mr. Rasmussen's research uh, hadn't really been talked about. You would have had to have been in New Orleans to get the real information about this. Um, and 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 he gives um, Daniel gives full the Caucasoid gives full credit to um, the people in New Orleans that he talked to, the community activists and the um, children, the you know the great great grandson, the great 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 granddaughter or whatnot of um, the folks that participated in it, and so uh, we need to. Make sure we share this information and uh, get it to as wide of an audience as we can. And that's what I'm trying to do here. So, yeah, 1811slaverevolt.com. So, yeah, so then we went through and um, Francois Trepignier, we talked about how he was told about the the, the 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 army coming to him, and he was like, "These, the this is a ragtag bunch of folks." So he sent his his wife and his child out to the swamps, and he felt he was going to, you know, go up to the second floor and and hold ground and be able to shoot a few warning shots, and these ragtag folks were just going to, you know, cower and run away. But we know that didn't happen. Trepignier's estimation of the slave strength and his decision to stay behind proved dead wrong. This is coming from page 109. Kwaku led a party behind the plantation house up to the second story. As other enslaved Africans lit fire to the foundations, Kwaku took his axe and hacked Francois Trepignier to pieces. Hacked him to pieces. Local legend has it that Gustave too swung an axe, exacting final vengeance for years of patronizing mistreatment. And, and, and <clears throat> Gustave was uh, an African who Trepignier had in his house, and he treated him as his house pet, treated him as a dog. And the only way that Gustave would be fed is he would throw scraps off his table. Uh, Trepignier had a long history of just being like extra, extra mean and vicious with um, his enslaved African people. And so they definitely wanted to make sure that they took this crack out, and they did. 
and um, Gustav was able to get a little bit of retribution for his years of um, horrible treatment from this specific Caucasoid. Coming from 110, only through extermination and extreme violence could they earn the right to form a separate political community, to be recognized as men rather than slaves. Violence was simply the price they had to pay for freedom. And Gilbert Andre and Francois Trepignier were the down payment. Inspired by the Haitian victory over Napoleon's army, the rebel leaders were not unrealistic, <clears throat> were not unreasonable in imagining that they could defeat the Americans' small colonial army. So yes, yeah, so that all transpired on January eighth, eighteen eleven, and then. You move to January 9th, and again, they, they continued going towards the black slaves of New Orleans were the first to arise on January 9th. As their masters slept, the slaves began preparing for the day, readying the horses, lighting the fires, and cleaning the houses. Slaves formed a great underclass of the city serving as laundry women, delivery boys, cleaners, construction workers, carriage drivers, cooks, peddlers, boatsmen, and manual laborers of all sorts. <clears throat> so, yes, yeah, so on January 9th, um, they were sort of so on January ninth, um, the governor, Governor Claiborne, that bastard, he he finally got wind of what had happened, and so I don't know if I mentioned this last week. If I did, I'm sorry. Um, so he and he heard it from his top general, um, Wade Hampton, and so. The American military at that time, they were fighting a war. They were fighting the Spanish for control of the Florida Territory. And so the majority of their of the American military at that time was, was over there. So they couldn't really send reinforcements. They, they were able to send 60 folks. 60, <laughs> 60, 60 military folks to help out what was going on in New Orleans. And so they were led by um, Wade Hampton. And so I want to I want to find the passage where to go. Yeah, where's the passage go? I'm sorry. Give me a moment. One day. (laughs) 
Okay. Okay. There we go. Okay, so yeah, so you got these sixty sixty military folks who were who were set in to squelch the rebellion, if you will. And and so now they're still moving forward, they're still we're still doing our thing. And oh wait, that's not it. Damn it. Okay, well, I'll go back to what we were doing on January 9th. Um, January 9th was where the Maroons of of New Orleans, a few of them, joined the revolt. Here, finally, Maroons uh, began to join the insurrection at the plantation of Alexandra Labranche. The longtime Maroons, uh, Reuben and Kofi, left the swamps and joined the revolt. Following their lead, a wave of swamp Denizens gave up the security of the wooded retreats to fight with the rebel army. And so that helped, you know, swell the numbers too. Because, like I said, the accounts say between 200 and 500, and there's no real uh, solid number. If you just go by the court documents uh, and all of that, there's 125 folks that he said he can prove were there. Uh, but then the eyewitness accounts again it, it it varies from 200 to 500. So of course you know I'm going to move towards the um, higher number, but and and definitely with you know maroon help, they won't. Those numbers wouldn't be fully accounted for um, because they had left the society. So you won't have records of them there. How come I can't find this part? Basically, when the Ameri- when the sixty American military folks um, they came across, they came up to um, a plantation, and it was lit, and they had got information from from a sellout that um that they may be that this is where they may be boss. And so these military folks come up to this plantation and it, it they say it looked like folks had been there. It looked like this army had been there. And I am so mad. And so by the time that they had got, oh, there we go. Okay. Hampton and the planters met to arrange a plan of attack, delaying any abrupt movement in favor of a well-organized strike. They knew what was at stake. The order of the attack was formed. The moment the troops reached the ground, infantry and seamen so disposed as to enclose by forward movement three sides of the small enclosure, which embraced the building, and the horse at the first signal was to charge the other. <clears throat> the infantrymen and the seamen crept into position. 
the horsemen steeled themselves for a bold cavalry charge. At the crucial moment, Hampton ordered them to attack. Horses galloped, guns fired, and soldiers shouted into the night. But no enemy returned fire. As the soldiers penetrated the walls and fences and began to search the buildings, they found only a few unarmed slaves. The bulk of the slave army had retreated. In his report to headquarters, Hampton blamed a few young men who had advanced so far as to discharge their pieces at them for alarming the slaves before the troops could attack. But what had really happened, more likely, the enslaved Africans had left well before the military arrived, alerting not, alerted not by an antsy young white man, but by slave spies. Though they found no rebels, the militia found ample evidence of the slave's presence. Um, his plant, uh, Fortier, that's the plantation they was at, showed evidence that they had been there, um, killing poultry, cooking, eating, drinking, and quote-unquote rioting. That's how he wrote it. The uh, military didn't know this, but they had fallen for a classic West African military ruse. Warfare practice in the Congo especially featured frequent advances and retreats intended to confuse the enemy. The Congolese soldiers would watch their enemies carefully, waiting for an opportune moment to attack. This careful strategy allowed the Congolese to use numbers to overwhelm better armed forces. The enslaved Africans' ploy had worked marvelously. Hampton and his men and their horses were too tired to pursue the quote-unquote fugitives further. And so the slave army retreated into plantation territory. The American military force took a break at that plantation. Fooled by Charles Delone and the slave rebels, the white army now faced a bleak prospect. And this is the planters who were moving forward and trying to uh, conquer this revolt on their own. Um, like I had alluded to earlier, by letting Manuel Andre live instead of going and finding him and hacking him into pieces, he then hooked up with another white guy named, um, I think, Charles Perret, P-E-R-R-E-T, and those two put a band of about 80 farmers together, 80 white folks together, armed to the teeth to go out and um, take care of business and, 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 and guard their way of life, if you want to call that a way of life. So, so they were pressing forward, and then they thought they were also going to get some help from the military. And so we just shared that this military part, didn't work, and they got tired and then decided to just chill at the plantation because they were too tired. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the White Army now faced a bleak prospect. As they marched further into the German coast, each plantation, each grove of cypresses could shelter the slave army, and every black slave on every plantation was a potential spy, or recruit. The soldiers did not know the terrain very well, and the, popul and, and the population was clearly hostile. Any optimism Hampton might have had outside of that plantation faded quickly 
and these thoughts ran through his mind. So that's what was going on January 9th. Now, unfortunately, the revolt only lasted three days, from the 8th to the 11th. And like I said, you got to take your victories where you can. <laughs> and, and I shared some of what was done on the 8th and on the 9th. Well, on the 9th and on the 10th. Yeah. Okay, four days. Um, but, I'm oh, sorry, three days, January 10th, yeah. But on that day, January 10th, the rain is still coming down. This ragtag army, like you said, of 80 planters armed to the teeth and assembled on the levee. Um, they had unwittingly flanked our freedom fighters, expecting the only resistance to emerge from New Orleans, the enslaved Africans had not anticipated such a rearguard action. They had neither taken a defensive position nor steeled themselves for combat. The planters, led by Perret and Andre, had come upon them by surprise. Though the rebels formed a force more than double the size of his detachment, Parade decided to attack. If his planter or militia could not defeat the slave army, he believed all would be lost. The planter's wives and children would die at the hands of a ferocious slave army, and everything they had worked for to build would burn at the torch. It was a dire thought. Summoning his men, Parade called, Let those who are willing follow me and let's move out. The slave army slowly formed into a line of battle. They then waited, watching as the planter militia approached slowly across the cane fields. The muskets the slaves carried were only accurate at short distances, so proper military tactics dictated that both sides must close to within 500 feet before firing a single shot. And now, I like this part here. We can never, this is all from 137, 138. We can never know the thoughts. We can never know the thoughts that went through. No, I won't start this now. Um, They just told me I got like a minute left, so we're going to finish it on the flip in. If you want to hear the rest of this, please, um, 760-454-1111. Or you can also download the archives. Uh, We're going to go ahead and continue with how we lost and and what happened to us after we lost and uh, share some stuff, excuse me, about next week's program. 760-454-1111. We will continue this um, in the overtime. Tune in next week. Uh, We'll talk about the Maroon communities and other um, enslaved African insurrections. 
in the United States. Uh, Abibi Fahodie, total African liberation. of European control works is that you have to accept a concept of reality which makes them superior. If you deny that, their thing will not work and they will lose their control. All right, so continue. We can never know the thoughts that went through the slaves' heads as they took their stand. The two options before them were freedom or death. Fifty years later, a free black man fighting with a regiment of the French-speaking ex-slaves from Louisiana described their emotions upon entering battle with the Union Army. We are now fighting and ask no more glorious death than to die for freedom. Now, let me stop. Even though now, even though he's pulling this quote from somebody who was fighting, you know, <laughs> with the Union Army and this whole American thing, I do think this next quote here, would, and, and I'll go along with the author, I think this next quote here would be something that we would have been thinking um, as this was happening. As um, we, we set up the front line, and we're about to engage in, in this in, in battle. And if we whoop them, then it's on to New Orleans to take over the city and to, you know, do whatever, whatever. If not, then we die on this spot. So I think he pulled out a good quote here, and I, I would agree. I do think this is what we were thinking during this this engagement. And I quote, from 138 Before our race To go back into bondage again To be hunted by dogs Through the swamps and cane breaks To be set upon, To be set up on the block And sold for gold and silver No, never Gladly we would die first Most likely, the slave rebels felt the same way. And so, he goes through, he talks about the weather. He he, he gives, he talks about the environment. Um, the cane fields form a wide, open, uh, a wide, flat, open space with good visibility. Um, most battles, you know, are fought in a mix of woods and open spaces lending an advantage to guerrilla tactics like those the enslaved Africans would have likely employed. But an open field favored the sort of large-scale infantry movements popular among well-drilled armies. So they were in the open cane field, so that would be advantage cracker army. Um, but the weather was on the side of um, us, uh, on the enslaved Africans. The pouring rain meant that the white militia would be unable to bring in artillery 
um, either by river or along the Muddy River Road. They wouldn't have, and, and with the heavy rain, they did not have the benefits of um, grape shot, whatever that is, or the cannon fire as they attacked. Um, so both sides had to fight with muskets. Uh, staring in the face of death, the slave army did not blink. The blacks, this is, yeah, the blacks were not intimidated by this army and formed themselves in line, wrote a Spanish agent in New Orleans. Then in an instant, the first shots rang out. The African drum, the African drums beat war rhythms and the leaders called out to the slaves to encourage them. As the first soldiers on both sides fired their muskets, clouds of smoke would have quickly poured down on both sides, hiding everything but the flash of enemy guns. Guns roared, muskets crashed and burst, bullets zipped and hissed through the air. Facing battle for the first time, the slaves could have only felt the unease and terror of confronting a danger that they could neither see nor comprehend. The slaves at first might not have recognized the noise of bullets, which could sound like fast-moving bees or birds. Amid the smoking chaos, men began to drop. Their deaths would have seemed strangely disconnected from the cacophony of noise. The bullets themselves were invisible. The leaders of the slave army watched through the smoke as their men began to fall, as bullets opened, gaping wounds in the bulging muscles of the sugar workers. Perhaps the slaves discharged their weapons too early. Perhaps the white planters were simply better trained and disciplined. But within a few minutes, the slaves had discharged all of their ammunition, and the planters kept firing. The slaves watched as corpses proliferated. Their hair still wet from the recent rain, rebel slaves lay dead on the ground, their eyes glazed, their lips blue, and their last expression fixed forever in their faces. It was a horrifying sight. So, yeah. So, after we ran out of ammunition, we went up to the team and kept firing. And more of us started dropping, and more of us started dropping. Um, only then did we, some of us then, broke ranks and decided to try to flee. Um, they didn't. We didn't have much of a lead. Um, come to find out, the, the planters had also paid. Um, and he doesn't give the details in here But um, they had paid a party of Native Americans To help them um, travel through the swamps to track us down uh, They had got that tactic from um, When they were trying to squelch the um, Louisiana Maroon Wars 
they would pay off Native Americans to um, track down through the swamps because they knew the, you know, the territory and the environment. So they employed it here as well um, to track us down. And they also um, had bloodhounds who were trained to chase runaway enslaved Africans. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the rebel group, they killed on sight. And some of them, some of us, they um, decided to bring and put to a um, kangaroo court. <sighs> the planters killed survivors immediately after the battle. Only about 25 prisoners, including... Koiku and Kwamana survived to trial. After killing the slaves, the planter militia began a barbaric practice, chopping off the heads of the dead rebels as souvenirs and warnings for other slaves. The blood of the wounded, the dead, and the decapitated soaked into the cane fields. They they caught up with um, Charles Charles did not escape The dogs got to him first Dragging him down and ferociously biting into a sweating flesh the planters, recognizing Charles as the principal leader of the bandits, brought him back into the cane fields to make a public demonstration. According to one witness, the militiaman chopped off Charles's hands, broke his thighs, shot him dead, and then roasted his remains on a plane on a pile of straw. Charles died a martyr for his cause. His death cries, a stirring message in the escaped slaves still cowering in the marshes. So then, from January 12th to January 21st, 1811, now with the um, rebellion squash, they... had their kangaroo courts. And 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 as he as the author rightly um mentions, it wasn't a court, you know, to hear their hear our side. It wasn't a court to um find guilty or innocent. It was a court to legitimize their violence and to help reestablish the boundaries between quote-unquote civilized and quote-unquote savage. 
They intended the tribunals to swiftly approve the murder of all slaves involved in the uprising so that society could be reestablished to meet the planters' visions. One thing that they also did obsessively, collectively, they chopped off the heads of the slave corpses and put them on display. By the end of January 1811, around 100 dismembered bodies decorated the levees from the Place des Armes, A-R-M-E-S, in the center of New Orleans, 40 miles along the river road into the heart of the plantation district. And so this particular chapter is called Head on Poles. And so that that had seemed to be the um, preferred European method of squelching any resistance. Um, Once they caught the people who were involved, they would chop their heads off, put them on poles, as, you know, reminders and as warning um, to all the other enslaved Africans to um, not resist or you will end up like this. And, of course, it was also a good psychological boost for the Caucasoids themselves um, and and continued justification for their 400-year um, enslavement process. So last thing we'll say about the whole thing, actually. <laughs> um, so they, they, like I say, they had about 25 folks, and they would, you know, bring them in one by one and, you know, trying to get confessions from folks. And, of course, unfortunately, a whole bunch of folks started, quote-unquote, giving up other people. One guy named um, Charles is the principal chief of the brigands. Um, and, and, and folks were just naming, you know, naming folks and saying he did this and I saw him do that and I saw this and he did that and all that sort of stuff. What I will <clears throat> share, though, And and hey, I I, <laughs> I think you gotta have you always gonna have some folks who are like this. Coming from one fifty four. The final interview of the day, January thirteenth, was with Harry of the Kenner Estate, who had been one of those men who had met with Charles on Sunday before the revolt. Harry, unlike a few others, refused to speak or to confess. The planners sentenced him guilty on the spot. You know, of course. 
but but Harry Kenner, you know, he's one of the four that we had mentioned. Kwaku, Kwamina, Harry, and Charles. Um, Harry was like, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not gonna play your little kangaroo games. He ain't speak. He ain't confess. You know, whether you talk to not, like very few. I think he said two people out of the 25, only two of them were given their freedom from either confessing or just saying, you know, flying stuff outside their mouth to try to get free. So, as you see, it didn't make a difference if you ratted or if you shut up. These cockroaches are going to kill you. On the morning of January 14th, after several other slaves had been interrogated, the planners called next for Kwaku. Kwaku refused to denounce any other slaves, and he would not tell the planters who participated and who did not. But he did proudly confess to one thing. Quote, he admitted that he was the one who struck Mr. Francois Trepignier with an axe. Unquote. Kwaku had the records in the record books. They, 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 they call him Kook. But like, like we said last week, when you dig a bit further, that's just a European misunderstanding of um, the Asante word Kwaku. Kwaku had confirmed his own death sentence. Later in the day, Kwamina, as the records call him, but probably Kwabina, again another Asante warrior, too would take the same course. Kwamina acknowledged guilt and that he had figured in a notable manner in the insurrection. He did not denounce anyone, read the transcript. These two warriors stayed true to their oath. Because right before um, the Sunday, right before they decided to engage, you know, they took oaths um, as to, you know, no one would say anything. And so, of course, you know, folks did (laughs) break that and and, and, and decided to give up other people. But um, Harry, Kwaku, and Kwamina. Names who we really, really should um, add to our libations when they call upon, you know, personal and national ancestors. If if you go to, you know, African rituals and stuff, call out Kwaku of the New Orleans 1811 Rebellion. Call out Kwabana of the New Orleans 1811 Rebellion. Call out Harry Kenner of the New Orleans 1811 Rebellion. And call out Charles DeLong of the New Orleans 1811 Rebellion. And, and, you know, we can only speculate because they killed him on the spot. But I'd like to speculate that Charles would have done just like Kwaku and Harry and Kwamina. I ain't, I ain't I ain't giving up nobody. I ain't telling nothing on nobody. I know you're gonna kill me anyway, so fuck you. And so
Oh, I'm sorry. Let me mention a few other folks. Other slaves refused to testify or submit to the judicial powers of the planters. Robain of James Brown Plantation refused to accuse anyone. Joseph of the Trepanier estate um, confessed his guilt and did not deny the charges made against him, but he did not accuse anyone. Um, Etain and Nede of the Trask estate did the same. So, yeah, the planters made no effort to distinguish between these slaves or to define their crimes on an individual basis. They simply categorized 18 of the 21 slaves as guilty and dismissed entirely the diversity of the slaves' testimonies. Um, and so, yeah. So even though they got us, we fought back. And even to the last, to their last breath, basically, you still had some folks who, who stood true to the oath, knew what was going on, knew they were going to die. So it wouldn't have helped to rat out and make up stuff and sell their brothers down the line and all that sort of stuff. And, again, that's another lesson that we can pass on <laughs> to folks. Um, selling out and ratting folks out um, in situations like that makes no never mind. Uh, you don't do that. What we say in the street, snitches, catch stitches. Uh, And so one one way that this whole story has been covered up for almost about exactly a little bit more than 200 years was the way that the governor categorized it. Um, because you know when you when you're a historian and you're supposed to do research, you know the main thing that you the first thing you're supposed to deal with is primary sources, folks who were actually there and what they actually said. And so most folks went to um, the governor of Louisiana during that time, and he stripped the rebellion of revolutionary or geopolitical meaning by dismissing it as an act of base criminality. And so you got that. And so then some folks within, again, primary sources, will then see what the newspapers of that time had to say, and and as as Daniel shows that either the newspapers were hush about it, or when they did mention it, again they just they they didn't put it as far as you know revolutionary freedom fighters, um, fighting enslavement in the European and American system, fighting for their freedom, you know stuff like that. They basically just again called them a band of brigands whose act of criminality was easily squelched by the American military and stuff like that. And so when these historians, like Abdecker and, and, and other folks, 
uh, went through the records to try to put together their stuff, there wasn't much to find um, as far as the primary sources. Um, what, what what Daniel did is he went through um, financial records, financial ledgers, um, and the court documents and put together a database and then created his narrative around that information. And, you know, most of the folks who, a lot of the folks who are dealing with slavery vote information usually are doing survey surveys of a whole bunch of slavery votes just to say, okay, there was one here, there was one here, there was one here. But as far as doing that detailed information about each specific one, Abdecker and other folks really weren't doing that. That wasn't their task. They were just there to, okay, here's some information about this revolt. This is what the paper said. Okay, let's continue, keep it going, moving on. Um and then the folks who did talk about it basically came from a strict white supremacist background um, and, 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 and tone and tenor in what they talked about. And, again, all that's in his cover-up chapter, which I did jump to and read first. But um, And then other folks who talked about it got a hold of it. They only dealt with it from a Marxist type perspective. So they still, again, didn't see African people fighting for their freedom. They saw uh, they saw workers fighting the petty bourgeois of that day to get class parity or some BS that those <laughs> that those um Marxist folks be talking about. So So, yeah, he does a good job uh, of how this story has been covered up uh, throughout, the, throughout the years. And we finally now have the full, a larger picture of the story. Uh, he, he, he lists a few um, primary documents. And one that's real good, and he says he used it a lot, was by a guy called Albert Thrasher on to New Orleans, um, Louisiana's historic 1811 slave revolt. And he was like that, before this, before American Uprising, that had been the, the most detailed account of the 1811 revolt. Um, but it was self-published. And you can't get a hold of it now. So he told me some ways, <laughs> a way that I can try to go about getting it, you know, the same way that he did. And so I'm going to try to do that, see if I can get my hands on this on this book um, to get more information about it. Because, again, I'm on one level I'm embarrassed that I didn't know about it. But, again, um, it hadn't been put out there. It's not like, you know, something that was an elephant in the room and, you know, folks just missed it. No, it was deliberately covered up first by the governor of the state at the time and then by, um, you know, further historians, whether, again, coming from a white supremacy bit or coming from a Marxist bit, no one really dug in dug in their research heels and, and did the work to put together this story uh, you know, Abdecker did mention that it was the largest 
the largest revolt, but, you know, again, he was doing a survey and didn't give a lot of information, and nobody really outside of Louisiana, outside of New Orleans, and did the work to uh, figure this story out. Uh, I give credit to this cracker, <laughs> Daniel Rasmussen, for doing that. And um, if you just Google his name, um, I think he's got a web page, and he'll be speaking all over the place. And so he'll probably be coming to an area near you. Um, I, I saw he's going to be in New York, and then he's going to do some stuff on the West Coast. So I would definitely say I, I do endorse this book, um, if for nothing else, just having the story of the revolt and having his bibliography to where you can then try to uh, dig up the sources that he used, primary and secondary. Um, so not only can you do the research, can you further the research, but if nothing else, by having the book, you can um, know about the story and uh Tell this story to other folks and um, let its legacy um, live on. It don't matter that it wasn't successful. What matters is resistance, and we fought, and we fought proudly, and we had many, M-I-N-I, victories along the way. Um, And even though the end result didn't end up like we wanted it to, just the resistance just having that story of resistance is what we need. That's one reason why we still talk and pray Shaka Zulu. Um, we forget that the British came over and got stomped and whooped about 20 times, I think, <laughs> 15, 20 times. And unfortunately, it was that last battle that, that the British finally won. But but we 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 bring up Shaka's name because of his courage of conviction because of his fighting tactics, because of the victories that he did get over those bastards coming in, trying to take over the land and change the culture and kill the people and rape the women, all that sort of stuff. Um, And so, yeah, even though it didn't end the way we would have wanted to, um, there were some victories in there. And so if we can call upon Shaka Zulu's name, Um, with reverence, even though he didn't end the way that he would have wanted to end those battles, that last battle, (laughs) excuse me, we can call upon um, Kwaku and Kwamina and Harry Kenner and um, Charles DeLong. And then others who we find fought valiantly and, and especially didn't sell out in the end. And call upon their names When we need extra strength To do battle against this Wicked, wicked beast (laughs) My throat's starting to give up So I guess that means it's time for me to shut up So yeah, so next week We're going to continue Our resistance lecture series Uh going to go through some of the maroon societies in the U.S. and possibly maybe also some other um, uprisings and insurrections that we had here in the States. (laughs) 
until next week, same time, same blog talk channel. Please click the books. Actually, when you click American Uprising, go ahead and buy it through the click. That that helped me out. Buying it through the click to help me out, and then clicking it to help me out. But then just click all the other ads and links that helps. Uh, please download it, download the archive of it, and, and share it with other folks. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, it's time for me to shut up. <sighs> Thanks for everyone's support. Until next week, Abibi Fahodie, Total African Liberation. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 